Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Sisters, Lord, we pray for a safe move on Saturday. Lord, we pray ahead for the prophecy conference and for the Bible studies that are going on. Bless them, Lord, um, and be with them. Thank you for your presence tonight. Lord, help, uh, help us to understand your word. Help me to communicate it clearly. Lord, just work through me in that way. Help me to get out of the way in your word to just speak and uh, sink into our hearts and affect us and change us. Lord, your word never comes back void. And we re- last time we looked at Genesis, we saw that you saw the void and you created something into it and you shot light right into that void. Uh, so, Lord, we don't want your word to come back. We want it to be a light that just goes right into our hearts and brings clarity and understanding to all that we do and how we think and how we move through our lives. Uh, help us to put aside the concerns of the day and the week and just focus on you for the next bit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in Genesis 1. Um, not long ago, we did uh, verses 1 through 5. So I'm going to pick up from there, but because Jeannie was gone, I want to review a little bit this <laughs> approach to Genesis. So it's not that many verses. I'm just going to kind of reread them. And, and with an ear to hear, uh, this is Genesis. It's the beginning of the whole Bible. I think God put this Bible together, and I think I'm in a room full of people that believe that too. Um, and this is the beginning of that book. So God's establishing his premise um, that there is a God that God had a personal hand in creation, that God made the world and did things, and that he's an active agent in history. And we get all of that from the first few verses. We get this view of God that he made this earth and humans and everything with a focus. So following after Pat's example, the title of tonight is the focus of it all. What we're going to do in the next few verses is we're going to zoom in on the purpose of why God made everything. And we're going to end tonight with this idea that he made humans and that there was a purpose to what he was doing. It all focuses in on that. So in verse 1, I'm just going right from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without, without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. So evening and morning were the first day. And that's how we spent a lot of time on just a few verses. Um, God establishes the primary narrative arc here is that there is something called light. And he's yet to put a sun and moon in the sky. So he's talking about the light, capital L light. And that light brings truth, clarity um, into what the Bible calls uh, the word. Uh, The darkness doesn't understand it, but it's the key, it's the whole setup, it's the narrative of the whole book. There is light and there is darkness. I want to take you to another Genesis passage in the Bible. Can you flip to John 1, who also starts with a phrase, in the beginning. And John is, as a person who has seen this narrative unfold in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
John uses this same form that we see in Genesis to help us see better what that light was all about. So listen for how he changes a couple words here, but I don't think he changes the meaning at all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. I love that line. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light. John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness to that light, that there was the true light which gives light to every man coming into this world. So in Genesis, we see, we're going to see at the end of the passage tonight, humans come into the world. And this light, John is arguing, is Jesus Christ. And that light is there for every human being in the world to see our way through life and to see what we're doing. Oh, I just put a note in here. It's a thought as we set up and we dig into uh, verse 6. If God is the song, perhaps the lyrics are Jesus. And when we read the word, we're, read it, we're really reading this large story arc that it's almost too big to really absorb the whole Bible at once in our brains. But you look at it and it's every passage just keeps coming back to this chorus of Jesus Christ and what we're doing. And listening to that song is part of what we've been created to do. And even to put that word in our hearts and to sing that song ourselves is kind of a neat thing. And you know I love music, so I just love that image of this idea that God and Jesus, the light, are the same thing. And they're the same thing. And the Holy Spirit's part of that too. Spirit might be the tempo. I don't know. But we'll get into this. So verse 1 creates all of space. Verse 2 zooms in and narrows in on the earth itself. Verse 3 zooms in on this light that's going to be there for the world. And verse 4 talks about this essential goodness In verse 5, God separates light from darkness. So then we see the the first first that we're going to see, and I'll I'll start out with the first couple verses here. Uh, Genesis 1, 6. Then God said, Let there be a firmament, firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and so the evening and the morning were the second day. I can't tell you how many times I've read this and just gone, oh, let me get to the good stuff. And as you reflect on this, it really is some of the good stuff. One of the primary things that you run into with Genesis, uh, even in the church today, is a growing number of people that start to see Genesis as mythical writing. So this is as mythical as the story of Pooh and Tigger, right? That this is a myth that's meant to tell us truths about the universe, but it's not actually trying to be a scientific journal. Now, it's not trying to be a scientific journal, but it's actually this kind of passage. It's actually scientifically accurate, even though I think science is underneath the Word of God. And there's some major problems we're going to run into with this idea of the myth argument. We're going to hit some of those today, right? If you are a believer and you believe the Word of God is true then you've got some internal inconsistencies with a myth argument. Namely, there are other places in the Bible that write about Genesis and these passages as though they are true and they're part of history. If you want examples of that, you can. I'm going to list these quick because I know it's recorded. Psalms 136, 
Psalm 90, Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Matthew 23, John 17, verse 5. We have tons of pieces where Jesus and other writers in the Old Testament, they treat this as history, and they treat it as accurate. So if you're going to argue it's myth, then you have to somehow reconcile with the fact that Jesus considered it to be history, and the writer of the Psalms considered it to be history. And now I also know that if I know my audience, I don't think we're in this argument as like a community. I think most people here don't see it that way, but we also have to deal with the rest of the world that kind of does. And there's some inconsistencies. Here's another major problem with that argument. When you read verses 6 through 8, this is not written as a myth. There's a format that's cross-culturally consistent when you write myths. Things like exaggeration, tall tale, skipping of details. When you write a myth, there's certain things you skip because you're trying to make a moral of the story. And when you look at any myth across any culture of any civilization on earth, it's not written like this. This is written like history. So there's a prose and linguistic format you have to reconcile. Last but not least, the idea that this is a myth somehow then bypasses some of these really technical passages that are really important to what's going on. So for believers to some degree, one of the concerns here is that, well, how do you do that? And there's other things that Christians have done uh, to try to evade the basic literal seven-day passage, which is what the Bible claims it is. And one is called a gap theory. The gap theory happens between some of these early verses. Well, between day one and day two, there could be this large expanse of time. Later on, I'm going to talk about where that really falls into some troubles when we get into how things were created because there's major problems with grass trying to grow without a sun, and it doesn't happen. So you can't really do those kinds of things. So in this particular passage, I want to dig into this firmament idea and kind of unpack that a little bit before we move on. Notice um, firmament is a word rakia in the Hebrew, which talks about a space or an opening, right? So an expansive space of some kind. So when you read this, let there be an expansive space in the middle of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. What does that mean? And what does that look like? Dry land isn't going to show up till verse 9. So how do you divide waters without putting dry land in the middle of it? And with to the naked eye, how do you look at the air and see water? So the idea of water to the writer of this wouldn't have made sense that you would separate waters from waters without land. That's an extremely confusing passage. Yet there it is. So if the water then is just being spread, why would you spread the water from the water? And not only that, I want to stop for a moment. Because I know I'm not arguing for creation theory here tonight, not with this crew, I want to just celebrate God a little bit. And I want to dig into, like, when we talk about water on planet Earth, we can just read past that, or we can just stop for a moment as a quick, short meditation and just absorb how cool water is and how amazing it is that every sentence of Genesis is an absolute miracle. And if you... There's things that don't make sense in physics that confound all the scientists, and I love that stuff. So if you will, tonight, you know I'm a geek, and when I study the word, I do it like a true geek. So I went to the U.S. Geological Survey Society and really tried to get what exactly are we dealing with with water, and let's dig into that. And then I'm going to come back to these verses, and you're going to see they make total sense. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is completely accurate. And there's no way Moses would have known this kind of stuff. So... There are, and again, I'm going to name numbers. It's hard to even get your brain around. There's 332 million cubic 
miles of water on this earth. Cubic miles. 96% of that water is in the oceans, right? We all knew that. The earth has got a lot of water on it. But there's 2.5 cubic miles of water in all the freshwater lakes of the world. So we're going from 332 in the oceans, 2.5 in all the lakes of the world, so Lake Superior, very small percentage of the world's water, right? Rivers are the number one source of human use. They make only one ten-thousandth of the total water on Earth. Less than 1% of the total water is what we use to survive, right? Um, I think this stuff's cool. I hope you can celebrate this with me. There's seven cubic miles of glaciers and ice caps on the planet. So if there's 2.5 million miles of liquid fresh water and there's seven cubic miles of glaciers, that means three times of the water that we need to survive is sitting in a bunch of glaciers on the two poles. So we could quadruple the amount of fresh water on this planet if we just melted those icebergs. But there's problems with that that we'll get to later. 68% of that is fresh water. Um, if you took it and spread it out all over the earth, we'd have 194 feet of water covering the entire planet. It is easy to conceive of this whole planet being covered in water, which we'll get to later in Genesis. <laughs> Lake Michigan, by comparison, is only 300 feet deep at its, deep, its deepest point. It's one of the deepest freshwater places on the earth. So we could eventually put the whole planet under Lake Michigan very easily with some of those kinds of things happening. So go back to verse 7. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament, space, from the waters that were above the firmament, and it was so. If you think about it and you think of those 2.5 cubic miles of water that are in the air above us, there's no way to know, unless you're just guessing that the clouds were moisture of some sort, without any sort of barometer or testing tools, there's no way to know that there's moisture in the air. Maybe you could do a thing and deduce from the dew on the grass in the morning that there's a certain amount of water in the air. But why would you write a sentence like, God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters that were above the firmament, and we're not even talking about land. So what is that? And I thought, you know, when I was a little kid and you look out at the horizon and you see the sky and you see the earth, one of those kid questions that I always had is, what's in between? And that never made a lot of sense to me. You know, because it looks like there's a space between what's up here and what's down here. And I always thought that's fascinating. And we know that there's air and there's layers around the earth and that sort of thing. But it never, it never occurred to me that that space gets bigger and smaller. And when you get fog, it's because it got a little bit, there's no space there and you're sitting in a cloud. Um, but that idea that there's those kinds of things. So how do you divide the waters from the water above and below when there's no land there? There's a vertical division, but then there has to be another kind of division to it. Here's what the U.S. Geological Society says. There are another two, two million cubic miles. I'm sorry. I think that's a, it's got to be a typo, right? 2,000 cubic miles of water that's under the ground on this planet. So that's an odd thing. I think I might have that number wrong. Internet fact checkers can figure that out later. Um, in the heavenly ocean, if you look above the sky and you're looking at those miles up there, you're talking about miles and miles of water that aren't actually what we think of as water, but in fact they actually are. If you look at the atoms, 
Water is water, in mist form, plasma form, ice form, or any other kind of form. So you can divide water into ice, gas, plasma, and actual liquid or water form. So you can divide the waters from the waters, and you can create a different kind of planet when you do that, and without even talking about land. And when you look at the amount of water resources that are underground, you think, wow, that's pretty amazing. And obviously it makes sense if you're out on the Great Plains and you dig deep enough, there is water down there, and there's fresh water under there. So the amount of water that's untapped and unused under the actual surface of the soil is amazing too. How does a planet like that even get created? How do you have layers of water, then soil, then water, then air, then water, and how do you do that? It doesn't seem like the thing that would happen in the vacuum of space. And you think, this is a miracle. God divided the waters from the waters. And that's not centrifugal force that would make that happen. Centrifugal force would send all that water off into space. But somehow there's this perfect balance that's going on, and it's stunning. Verse 8, And God called the firmament heaven, that space between, and so the evening and the morning were the second day. This is day two. So day one he makes light and darkness, and on day four he's going to do something with those lights. On day two he makes the, the, the waters, and on day five he's going to put things in the water. And on day three, he's going to make the next piece. And then on, on the day three, he's going to make land. And on day six, he's going to put things in the land. So you got day one, two, and three. And then day th- four, five, and six, those things will be populated. So God's setting this stage from big to little. And he's zooming in on something. And we all know what he's zooming in on. I'll get there. Uh, so the heaven, the, so the heaven, the, so the God called the firmament heaven. Heaven there is shamayim, which is sky that is visible from earth. Um, so it is the spread out areas of the sky that you can see from earth would be another way to interpret that. But on the other hand, there is an emphasis here on heaven and that the, the heavens are something above the earth and, and the sky and what we look at. For anything to happen on this planet, this idea of creating a water system on earth even before we talk about lands and continents, it was absolutely essential for this earth to be there. Water has to self-refresh. And I learned this the hard way. There was one time when there was this bottle of water at home, and it was sitting there for a few days. And then, have you ever tasted water that's been sitting for even a few days? And it gets a little stanky, especially if somebody drank from it and put a little bacteria in it, and it gets kind of nasty and gross. Or a lake that doesn't filter itself or doesn't have a moving water in it and it just collects mold all summer and gets kind of stinky and nasty and all that sort of thing. Water without motion is dead. Water with motion can have life in it and can clean itself and refresh itself. To have this perfect balance of waters and above the waters and below the waters and to have this thing called heaven means that you're going to have a perfect water cycle. And if you remember elementary school, that means... The heat that comes onto this planet evaporates a certain amount of water into that heavenly ocean. And then as that water goes up and away from the the earth, it cools. And then a perfect amount of water comes back down to the earth and it creates this water cycle. Depending on where that water hits on the earth, that's a perfect cycle that doesn't require land to happen. But it has to happen for any sort of balance on the earth. And it has to happen at just the perfect cycle, which means the earth needs to be perfectly distant from the sun It needs to rotate at a perfect speed. It even has to have the right angle on the axis so the heating and cooling sends those water cycles into different motions. So if you look at the tropics, it's hotter than it is at the the poles. 
and that creates an environment where that hot air and that cool air go up and down and up and down. Okay? So we'll leave my geography class. We'll come back to this. Science Magazine in July of 2018, just this last summer, got super excited last month. You know what? Remember what they got excited about? All right, I'll tell you, because Science Magazine is not that entertaining. But this article was, they found on Mars that there is water. They have found H2O, maybe kind of, on Mars. I want to go through that, because when that world gets so excited, they're so excited because they think there could have been life on Mars. And water is one of the things that we know is required for sustenance of life on Mars. We also know it's one of the most common chemical combinations. Hydrogen and oxygen will pair together because they love each other and they're friends. And to find water on other planets shouldn't shock us, right? Do you want to know how much water they're excited about compared to the numbers I just gave you? I was talking cubic miles before, right? They found 19,000 cubic meters on Mars. The other part that's buried in the article, that's compared to the 303 million cubic miles on Earth. The other part they told you is that, that most of that water that they found is actually underground. It's inaccessible to anything on the planet's surface. They also didn't tell you that if that water ever came up to the surface of that planet, it would instantly freeze. They also don't really tell you that Mars doesn't have a proper atmosphere to contain any sort of water. So even if that water ever did come to the surface, not only would it freeze, it would probably go right out into space. It is an absolute miracle that this planet can keep the water it has right where it's at. And every moment that we're on this planet and everything that's on it isn't flying off into space, it's kind of a miracle of perfect balance. I think that's amazing and worth thinking about. I'm confused why they get so excited if even if you found water on Mars, you get so excited about it. Because there's so many other elements that have to be there for that to really be exciting. Like, I'd be like, hey, a lake on Mars means we can be tourists, we can hang out, we can get our Mars tan, we can fly back home. That'd be kind of cool. I'm going to give you a quote from a Jagaheep Dependian. And I love the quote. So... If one calculates the equilibrium temperature on Earth based on energy balance, then one will find that it comes at around zero Fahrenheit, which is quite cold. So the average temperature on Earth is about zero Fahrenheit. The reason why the Earth is warm at about an average of 70 degrees Fahrenheit is because of completely separate factors like the greenhouse effect. There's a common misconception that the greenhouse effect is something that's inherently bad. The truth is that it's because of a mild greenhouse effect that Earth is as warm as it is and it's able to sustain itself the way it does. So not only is everything in perfect balance, but to keep this whole thing going with a 70-degree leap of average temperature to what we have on the surface of the Earth, we actually have this stunning effect called the greenhouse effect, which requires the perfect amount not just of H2O, but of CO2 and ozone. So there's gases that have to be in place to contain and protect that water. It's like having skin on a body, and those things have to be in perfect size. If that gets too thick, the earth freezes over, and we have all water ice on the planet. If it gets too thin, everything evaporates and goes away. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? So when I'm going to read those verses again, and you think of what it took to make this happen. Then God said, 
Let there be a firmament, a space between the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and so evening and morning were the second day. Let me ask you something. The first time we read it, was it as cool as the second time we read it? Doesn't that just give you eyes to see sometimes? And you're just like, wow, that's, that is pretty cool. I hope you're with me on that, at least. There's a problem with thinking that Mars is really amazing and getting too excited about finding water on Mars. And the problem is, you're trying to at some level reconcile that that possibility, that remote possibility, that somehow that water means something other than there's water on it on the underneath a planet core is this idea that the bible reconciles really easily how did we get this planet the way it was and the bible just says god did it and god said it and that seems to be not just an easier path intellectually to take but also one that's theologically consistent with this, these other pieces of the bible too and it kind of amazes me that way so dividing waters is essential and essential in order to divide the waters. So let's say they find mists on Jupiter that are H2O mists. Have you divided that mist into ice, liquid, fresh water, salt water? Have you protected those divided waters with an ozone layer and with other kinds of pieces? Is there anything else that means anything that would make me excited about that other planet? Because I'm still going to vacation here on Earth until they find a planet that does these cool other things. So... God says he did it. Shortens it up really quick. Let's go to day three. Land starts to show up in day three. Land is good. We like to live on land. God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. I want to point out one little thing right there. The only sea singular that Moses would have known of was the Mediterranean at best. The fact that he said seas, either he's listening to God or he made that's a typo, right? One of the two things is happening there. But the ancient world wouldn't have known of the Atlantic or the Pacific or the Indian or that sort of thing. At best, he might have heard of the Caspian Sea. Um, but of course, in Israel, they call the Dead Sea a sea, and that's kind of more of a lake. So... There's something there, too. I'll keep going. Again, it was a small point. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields the fruit according to its kind. We're going to see according to its kind about ten times in chapter one. We'll come back to that. Whose seed is in itself on earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the, the herb that yields seeds according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind and God saw that it was good. And so the evening and the morning were the third day. Again, I'm going to talk about balance a little bit. What happens to plant life and the land and everything else if we change the temperature of the planet by four degrees? Doesn't seem like a big deal. By the way, today was the perfect day to talk about creation, wasn't it? Like, I don't know how much you got outside today, but some days it's easier to appreciate creation. The difference of four degrees can help to make the difference or not. In 2012, the World Bank had some of the top scientists, the global scientists of the world try to figure this out. 
they figured that with four degrees warmer, we would have all coastal cities on Earth underneath the water because the icebergs would melt enough to raise the sea levels. We would have an increased risk of food production because we'd have higher malnutrition rates because those dry regions would become drier and we wouldn't be able to grow crops in the wet regions anymore. So the water cycle would get screwed up. Four degrees average temperature. We'd have unprecedented heat waves that would kill off a large percentage of all forestation and plants and trees on the planet Earth, especially in the tropics. We'd have water scarcity in other regions because the water cycle would not flow as well, so rivers would dry up and oceans would rise. Increased frequency of cyclones, hurricanes, and all the little spinny wind things. I don't know why that's the case. I didn't read that far. An irreversible loss of all biodiversity, including all coral reef systems, which would be too, too deep under the water. You think of the miracle of a coral reef in and of itself, it, it's amazing because it has to be a certain distance. Essentially, this article is kind of the fear-based science that I'm not a huge fan of, but I thought it was worth thinking and be amazed a little bit at how this planet stays in balance and that the trees and plants on this planet wouldn't exist unless we were within a very small range on that temperature scale. And temperatures determined by the force of energy coming off the sun, our distance to the sun, I already talked about the atmosphere and thickness to it, the tilt of it, the rotation and orbit that we have around the sun, the gravitational pull of all the other planets that are around us, and I'll get to more things too, but the speed of the planet, the movement of the planet, all the sizes, the masses of the sun versus the earth and everything else, the spin rate that we have, and the reflectivity of the earth. There's a certain degree to which sun bounces off the planet and a certain degree to where it doesn't. So even the color of this planet affects the reflect, how much sun, its energy we reflect. The heat of this planet is absolutely and perfectly designed to sustain plant life on this planet. So God sets it up, he builds it, and he makes it happen. <laughs> Where's that one quote? I'll get to it. Oh, there it is. Popular Science, February 28th, 2018. This is a more current one, too. I just love when scientists get to the point where they summarize things in a sentence, but they don't quite have the vocabulary. If the world gets warmer by 2 degrees Celsius, we're screwed. And that when you get some of the smartest people in the world, and they're saying, but I think of that, and I think, so 2 degrees is your margin of error, and God nailed it. And it's been sustained for at least 7,000 years of recorded human history. That we've sustained our temperature within 2 degrees for 7,000 years, and you have trouble believing in God? Like, to me, it's like, that's a miracle. That's stunning. I wonder if the other planets in the solar system have sustained their temperature so precisely over that amount of time. Again, this is all pre-sun and pre-moon and pre-stars, right? So let's zoom in a little more. According to its kind, um, I want to talk about that a little bit. And this is really one of those issues that is, is a struggle for those that want to reconcile some sort of a small random process that happens. The problem with planting an acorn in the ground is you're going to get a tree. You're not going to get grass. And Genesis 1 says that again and again and again, that there's an according to its kind. Can we breed trees? Absolutely. Can we make them go in different directions? Can we take wheat and breed the bigger ones and get even bigger wheat sheaves in our next crop? Sure we can, but you can't plant wheat and get barley. 
just doesn't work that way, and it never has. And there's no empirical evidence that it does. We can even try to match plants and breed them and have like cross plants and do that, but you have to do it within a kind. Like I can get black raspberries and red berries and make kind of blackish red raspberries, but I can't take my raspberries and get an apple tree. And there's this kind of shifting of kind that seems to be a disconnect when you talk to some people. Um, yes, breeding and splicing happens, and the diversity of life on Earth largely has happened within kinds. And the overwhelming tendency around plant life in the fossil record is that instead of an increasing number of plants on the planet, for all of our study of fossils, there seems to be a decreasing number of plants and animals on the planet. The fossil record actually goes to a lot narrower focus. We've lost life forms that seem to have existed before our time on this planet, and the, the, the life record of those things has gone down. And there's some things where you see plant life expanding and whatnot. There's been good seasons, but the overall path of the fossil record has been fewer and fewer plant life and plant life forms on the earth from when we see them pop up in the fossil record. Fascinating that there's seeds. If you ever get a chance, listen to Chuck Smith's sermon on this. He does one of his famous Chuck Smith things, and he just says, aren't seeds fascinating? And he talks for a second, which is worth a meditation. I'll try to imitate it as best I can, where he just says, think about seeds for just a second, and they're kind, because the Bible thinks about those things. Some seeds, how do they get around? The whole purpose of a seed is to find a new piece of dirt and make a life for the new plant. So how do seeds get around? And I remember when I was a kid, we'd go play in the park, and I'd come home, and I'd have to pick these little stickers out of my pants. I was serving God's purpose by getting, because I would dump them. Now we have to cut them out of our dog's hair, but some, some seeds are sticky. Others taste good, and, and you know, the dog, we, we'll go eat in this one neighborhood, and there's these apple trees in the public space, so we'll eat the apples, and then we feed the apple cores to our dog, and then later the dog takes care of moving that seed around the planet and does that sort of thing. So some seeds taste good. Some seeds are like Velcro. Some seeds float and even have little wings and flitter down. The cottonwood trees spreading all that lovely cottonwood stuff in the air that makes us sneeze. They're beautiful. Some seeds are waterproofed and can travel over distances of water all by themselves. Right? Some seeds come with their own nourishment. They don't even need to be buried in the dirt. They'll just have stuff around them that rots and that will be the nourishment they need to grow. Some seeds can endure long seasons of drought. Some seeds can endure fire. Like, we live on the Great Plains, right? We're expecting lightning bolts come and it all burns down and a new prairie pops up, and that's the ecosystem that's native to these areas. What a beautiful thing. Like, seeds that can endure water, fire, wind, all over. It's like these seeds were made for this planet and how to get around on this planet. It's wonderful. So in verse 11, we talk about the grasses, the herbs, the trees. Verse 12, we talk about the different kinds that fill the earth with vegetation. Um, and then we have the third day here. Two last thoughts on the third day. This is the first life that we're going to have on the planet. By the way, we define life, right? An organism that can self-replicate. So God's creating life here for the first time um, in the plants and animals and vegetation. We don't have a sun, moon, and stars yet. And I remember I told you to come back to this. The gap theory has a problem here because this says this is the third day and on the fourth day we get a sun. Can most plants survive a day without sunlight? Sure. Can they survive five billion years without sunlight? So you got a problem. Either you believe the Bible's true or it's not. Or it's, or it's, so 
you have to admit some sort of fatal flaw in the authorship here, even if you argue for a gap theory. It just doesn't work. Because then you'd have to say, well, they, got, they must have gotten the order wrong, and the sun was over here, and it was over there. And I tried to read through a few of these arguments, but they're so lost in confusion, I come back to Genesis 1 through 6. God brought light into this world. There's a clarity and an understanding that comes, and creation is the very first thing that gets described with that clarity and understanding. Is it any wonder that the enemy wants to attack, chapter 1? It's the first piece of clarity we have. And you watch the dances that people do to try to explain this stuff away. The alternative is that it's true, exactly as it's written. And you don't have to do any dance at all because it's internally consistent with itself. That vegetation could survive a day without a sun. Makes total sense. I don't have any problems with that. So anyways, I just thought that was a cool thought. Uh, Michael Behe wrote a book... uh, Darwin's Black Box, and he, just, and he was a biochemist that became a Christian and, and really started to argue for uh, a seven-day account of the creation. And he basically uses an argument called irreducible complexity. And we see that even in a seed, that there are certain elements to every organism, even bacteria, right? And if you really look carefully at those elements, they're irreducibly complex. There's no one part of those that would survive without the other. The whole organism doesn't work without this part. So there's no rationale for how those parts would assemble themselves over time. It's an impossibility. It's not even a probability or a large distant probability. It's an impossibility. Those things don't happen. So if you want a great book on that, you can get into that. You can. Notice also God says it's good when he sees life on this earth. And I think that's a great thought. Verse 14. Then God said, there be lights in the... (laughs) Let there be lights. There be lights. He's not a pirate. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Uh, Let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Bam. Now we have sunlight. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also, and God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So from day one, he made the heavens and he made light and darkness, and now he's giving places for those lights to reside. Notice that he says that there would be light holders. Um, So there's this kind of piece where... um, God made two great lights in verse 16, the greater light to rule the day, lesser light to rule the night. Those are actually two great, the, the, the way you would interpret that is a light holder. So it's actually pretty accurate because this is one of the things where they said, well, the, the moon isn't actually a light source. So the Bible's inaccurate. And if you really look at the Hebrew, it's not a light source, it's a light holder. So the moon reflects or bounces light and that's what makes it a light holder. Uh, in other places, it, he actually uses light like in verse 14, let there be lights in the firmament. So those are two different words. Um, and he uses the accurate word in the accurate place and how they can do that. We also see here a pattern of narrowing and on purpose. It's almost like you'd think the universe got made and then the earth would get made. So there was a part of me that thought, this seems like it's in the wrong order because the universe is so big and you'd think you'd go from big to small. But I actually think, and there's another way to look at this, God's making and targeting and has a focus and is zooming in on something very important and making the earth as a place to hold this important thing 
means that it makes a lot of sense that you would make and form this earth and then you would give it all the acriments around it. There's four purposes to day and night. The first is that there would be signs in the heaven. We are not talking about sorcery and predicting the future by looking at the stars. That's not what this is. This is far more of a Jewish thing. If you look at Job 38, Isaiah 40, uh, the idea that there's a north star that doesn't move, which means it's a sign we can find north even if, if, there, if we're out at night and we can go there. Psalm 19, Psalm 147, we see this idea that the signs in the heaven can also be things that point us towards God. Also, if you'll notice, when Jesus was born, there were some wise men that were studying those signs in the heaven very carefully that were off in Babylon. And some people think that that was the school of study that Daniel would have founded way back in the day. And those magi that came out of that area were actually looking at the heavens and were able to find Jesus in a manger because of their careful study of the stars in the heavens. If you've never seen a show called The Star of Bethlehem, it's like a DVD. We'll get you a copy if you want it. It's amazing because you have somebody from the modern day who's a believer that says, let's look at the stars for just a second. Here's something amazing about the stars. If you think of a lady that is yet to be married in the godly sense and known a man, we call her Virgo, right? But there's different names for that lady image in the heavens. And what's amazingly consistent is when you look at most cultures on the earth, they might have different names for those systems, but the same cluster of stars are generally named after the same things, which might indicate that before different cultures started corrupting things, there was actually a set of understandings in those star clusters. The other thing is, when you were a kid and you looked at star clusters and somebody said, that's Orion, did you ever think to yourself, no, it's just a bunch of stars? Like, the stars don't make sense to us unless in some way, shape, or form there is something to make sense of. But to me, it's just a bunch of stars. They look random to me. But the Bible would indicate here, and one of the purposes of those lights, is that they're not random. They're signs. They're also seasons. And you think of how God builds the feasts and has the Jewish people celebrating and doing all these things which are reflections and shadows of Jesus Christ to come later. And they base those things based on months, years, and days. Every major society in the world, Chinese, Babylonian, Mayan, Incan, most of those ancient ones, used to have a year that was 395 days, 9 hours, 56 minutes, and 9 seconds. Um, right, but, they, but, the, but there was a shift in that a lot of them had to shift their calendars, including us. Nobody quite knows why the calendars got shifted across all these cultures. There used to be a 360-day year, and then that turned into a 300 and Tell me, uh, what's the three, 365? Not 95, 65. So we've had a five-day shift in our year at some point in global history where these people that study the stars and skies want to know why all of a sudden did the year turn into a five-day longer year. And we still don't really know that for sure, and there's lots of theories, but I don't want to get into them. Similar historical, I don't want to get into them because there's more cool stuff here, and, but there's other kinds of commonalities that come with all, with all of these kinds of pieces. Another reason that, that's here is the days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on earth. And I'll get outside of the world of science a little bit and I'll just think, isn't it nice that we have stars when we look out at night? How many people have been blessed by the stars? And you just see them and you think, it's gorgeous. Or even when you go on vacation and you get away from the light pollution of the Twin Cities and you see what those stars were really meant to look like, 
and you get to see just the Milky Way itself just shines. Think of that era that God made that for us. And one of the things we've done is we've created so much light we can't even see one of the great gifts that we have. The warmth of the sun, I've experienced that as you can see, that you go out in the middle of summer and you just let that sun sink into your skin for a while, long and not long enough so that you fry, but it feels wonderful. And there's this warmth that comes from it and beauty that can take us right away from our anxiety and stress. Breathing rates actually go down when you take a walk and you enjoy all the plants that have been made on this earth and all the sun that's out there in the skies, or even if you go for a moonlit walk. We've seen that physiologically going out for that walk helps us reduce anxiety and stress, lower our blood pressure, and actually slow down our breathing rate. It's like they were made for us. And it's a beautiful kind of thing. So just another thought around that. Verse 16, where am I? The God made two great lights, lighter one to grow the day and the night. Day five, let's move on. Everything in day five was we're going to fill up those waters that God made in day two. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmaments of the heavens. Whose viewpoint is that from? So birds are flying and they're across the firmament of the heavens, the space of the heavens above us. He's thinking about the view from the earth, not the view from wherever God is at. And I thought that was neat, that they would be flying across the face of the firmaments, not across the face of the earth. So God's making something for someone. There's an incredible focus. There's a, there's a narrowing in on a great creation that's coming. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird creature according to its kind. In other words, you can't breed fish and get a bird. And you can't breed birdies and get fish. It doesn't happen that way. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. One thought, fish and birds are our primary food source on this planet. I mean, when you take about the natural world outside of kind of crops and grains, we're talking about a major, some of our, because you wonder why why are they separated from mammals? And you think, well, and they're so populous too. So you've got the oceans, and then you've got land, which is a little smaller, and then you've got, all these things filling the oceans, which are just countless. Like, we don't really know how many life forms are in the ocean. And then you think of the birds and the number of bird species there are, far more populous than how many bear species there are. But you've just got this abundance of life showing up on Earth. So we fill that up. Um, I think it's interesting here that we have a distinctive statement uh, in verse... 21, it says, So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves. So there's living things on the earth that don't move, which we just covered in the last day. But here we have a distinctive statement that they move. In other words, with each of these creative acts, we're getting more and more specific towards something. And I think this will be important when we look at the difference between animals and humans. But this time we have life forms that move versus life forms that didn't move before. Again, you could take some time and think of the aquatic wonders, the colors that fish have. Why? Why, are they ha- why do they have so many colors? 
Why do, they, why do they come in so many different forms? Isn't there a the best form that would be the most ecologically efficient life form in that biosystem? No. There's vast diversity of life in biosystems. So we don't see a, an optimal species emerging from some sort of pattern of reproduction. We see abundance of life in all different shapes, sizes, forms. And don't just think of the fish. Think of those poor little plankton and all the shrimp and the crab Think of the things we can eat. Think of the whales that are massive and the number of species that they have. Think of the absolute incredible universe that's underneath that ocean. And then look to the skies. Why wouldn't you have the most efficient bird, which should be the eagle? But there's all sorts of birds that the eagle doesn't beat out, right? So I got to have something at Bethel during faculty workshops this week. They did a great thing where we did stations. So I got to go listen to other professors and what they research at Bethel. My first station was Jeff Port, Dr. Jeff Port, who studies avial life and tracks migratory patterns of birds. So for his workshop, he just goes out, puts out mist nets, and catches birds for us to see. So we get up to the station here and think, ah, I'm going to hear a bird lecture. And he goes, well, let's start with, and he pulls out a goldfinch. And he's just got a little goldfinch sitting on his hand. It's trying to eat him and stuff. He tells us all about it. He says, I know this is female because, and he turns it over and he goes, and he says, one of the things that when, when birds are ready to start making birdie babies, they don't actually, they're not covered in fur like we're covered in, well, some of us are covered in hair. <laughs> they actually have like a small number of rows of hair, like less than 10. And those feathers simply do a wonderful job of covering them. But when they're about to give birth, two of those rows go bald. So on a female bird, when you turn it upside down, he went, and it just opened up. And it was all like, that was very private. Um, but in the same sense, you think, but then he, then he stops. When he goes, but notice how the, the other rows still cover it up perfectly and what it does. And he talked about its feet and its beak and how it operates in these birds and how wonderful they are. And then he goes into this, another bag and he pulls out a cardinal and he's like, okay, here's a cardinal. And this thing was angry. Cardinals are not friendly birds. And he's just showing us a cardinal that he caught that, that morning. So, he'd have, so he knew when he put the mist nets out, he would catch something to show us. So and he had a water whipper snapper thing and all these deals. And then when he goes to let go one of them, he says, so just listen real carefully when I let it go because they're either happy they're gone or they're like, in bird language, they're telling me off. But sure enough, he lets it go, and the thing cheeps two times as it takes off and flies off into the trees. Amazing creatures. Some of them live here in the winter, so us Minnesotans have more awe and wonder around birds. How do they survive the freezing weathers? You'd think they'd just be little ice cubes, but they don't. Some of them actually survive here through the winter, and and they're winter birds, and they're able to do it. And you think, that's stunning. Even if they got a big feathery coat, like I get that, but those little feet, they'd be frozen solid if they were my little feet. I don't get it. It's a miracle. I forgot one miracle because I was, I don't know, I'm, I'm going too fast, I think, a little bit. Do you know that water, can I go back to water for a second? Talking about bird feet and the miracle of this. Do you know that water actually has a unique atomic signature that makes it so that the solid form is actually lighter than the liquid form? Think about it. When you drop ice into your drink, what happens? Should that happen? We just take it for granted, right? It's one of the only things on the planet Earth that we're aware of in science where the solid form is lighter than the liquid form. Do you know what happened to all the birdies and all the sea life 
if water froze and the ice sunk? Think about our lakes in Minnesota. What happened to all freshwater fish in the winter? They'd be crushed. They'd be dead. All the rivers, if that were the case, that ice would just fill the bottom of the river, the water would flow over the edge, the rivers would just freeze out. There'd be nothing left underneath to keep those fish going. Why? How does that happen? Is that a miracle we still appreciate? But it's actually written into the atomic writing of the molecules of H2O that they spread in a unique way where the spreading lowers, the, uh, spreads out their density. So ice expands. It's kind of neat. I don't know. I get amazed by these things. So let's go on to day six. We'll have more to be amazed about here. Actually, I don't have as much with mammals because if you don't appreciate mammals, there's something wrong with you. Um, uh, and I think that's why we keep some of them as pets is that they're stunning. So we're going to zoom in one more time. We're going to zoom in past the masses of fish and birds, which are so many we can't even put our heads around. We're going to zoom in on the small world of the animal kingdom. Um, and then all that's left that's on this planet really is humans, and we'll get to that next. Verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind. You get a sense that according to its kind is really important in Genesis. Like that mattered here. A cattle according to its kind and everything that creeps upon the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It's almost like they knew that God knew that we were going to have these pithy little arguments around creation. And so in day three, dry land was created. In day six, we're going to populate and put things on that dry land. It's like decorating your house before the holidays or before you're about to do something really amazing. So again, I didn't put a lot of notes for this. I think the, for me, and you may share this, we have a dog, Shadow, the dog, this big golden retriever. This dog has personality. We've had other dogs that also have personalities. And we have these animals in our home that we love. We used to have a cat. She thought she was a dog. We now have a dog that thinks it's a cat. Um, and these sorts of things. But there'll be times when Shadow's kind of sleeping and he'll let you pet him, right? And you come up and you can get really close and you can just see the little furs coming out because they have fur that covers their whole face. Same thing with the kitten. And if you rub them right between the eyeballs, they just relax and put their eyes... They just It gives you this peace. Shadow actually knows, and dogs can know this kind of thing, the miracle of dogs. Shadow can actually hear your heartbeat when you come to our house. And most dogs can. They actually don't just hear our vocal noises here. They can hear the, the, the speed of our heart. So some dogs can actually be with people where that heart rate's important and be medical prevention dogs, right? But here's the other piece. Their noses are a miracle, too. Stunning, And we don't have these kinds of noses. These are unique to these little puppies. When I was a principal up in northern Minnesota, we had one of those sniffer dogs that would come around looking for the marijuana. And uh, we had a dog that hit on a student's car in our parking lot. And we went in, we got the student, A-plus student, wonderful young man, great guy. And he is terrified because the principal just came in and said, I need you to open up your car. I don't, I just, I, there's nothing in my car. I'm t- the dog's got to be wrong. He's got to, I'm sorry, my man, but dog hit on your car. We got to see you're on public property right now. I know, I know, I'll, I'll get it. So he opens up his car, looks through it. The dog is certain 
You know, he opens up that car, the dog doesn't waver. And he goes, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I, I got nothing in here. Okay, well, you know, let's open up your glove compartment. He opens his glove compartment, it's all just papers and stuff, and the dog's like, Bruh! And we're like, can I see your papers? So he gives the papers, and behind the papers, there's a small little box of 22 shell, birdshot shells. And we give it, we put it by the dog, and he goes, Bruh! And we're like, good dog, he got his treaty. Let's think about what that dog just accomplished. He's trained also to smell gunpowder, which is inside a casing, which is inside a plastic box, which is behind a bunch of papers that have been there forever, and auto, you know, those things start to get musty. Inside a glove box, inside a car, and this thing smelled it from the back tire with absolute certainty. And that's when I thought, God, you are amazing. I, that's at a level of olfactory prowess that I can't imagine. <laughs> There's another movie uh, about this bear that attacks Lenny DiCaprio, or whatever, that guy. And there's a scene in there where they try to really get a sense of a bear attack. Because you think of bears as big, friendly, lovable things. My dream is in heaven, if you want to find me, you just want to figure out who's tending for the bears. Because I think a lot of this stuff will be around in the new earth. And God made a lot of these animals because we enjoy them. And I can't think of anything better than riding a bear. Like, <laughs> wouldn't that be cool? And you, again, there's a little kid inside me that keeps talking. Um, and you think, wow, oh, boy, that would just be amazing. And you think, that'd be like, my wife's looking at me like I'm nuts. It would be the most heavenly thing in the world to do that, but I always thought of bears as slow. We went on a vacation out west, and I had like a surprise day trip where we went to this place where you could like hold a baby bear, and they had, you know, one of those kinds of things. And it was fun. We got to hold a bear, right? And it was neat. I think a lot of these, part of the fall is that these animals aren't in concert with us anymore. The lion used to lay down with the lamb. These animals didn't necessarily eat things other than the herbs and the trees and the fruit. Um, and what a cool world that would have been for Adam and Eve to live in this place where you're in harmony with those things. Long story short, this movie has a scene with the bear and it attacks and it's, in the, it's just a blink of an eye where they did this. And they tried to accurately represent a bear attack because you'd think it's a very large animal, just run. Like how can that thing beat you? But the speed at which it could move was horrendous. And this is again, this would be for adults because it's a scary scene. You're like, wow, I get it now. Because he had a gun. And you're thinking, shoot it, you know? But it, there just wasn't any time. And this thing was mad. It was angry. It was already injured from something else. And it, it attacked out of fear. And you think, wow, that's impressive. Lewis and Clark had the same thing in their journals. They couldn't believe how many rounds they could put into that bear before they dropped it, right? They encountered their first grizzly as they went west. And it's a kind of an interesting passage in their journals. And you think, these animals on this planet are absolutely stunning and amazing. And it's worth thinking for a moment what God made here, right? Not how he made it or what he did, but he didn't just make an animal or a cow. He made cattle according to their kind. And you can go all over the planet, and there's these big, powerful beasts that we can use to pull our plows. It's like they were made for us. There's bears that I can fantasize about. Don't even get me going on pumas, right? But there's these animals that are stunning. There's delight and charm. You go to the butterfly gardens at the Minnesota View and you walk through there, 
he didn't just make a butterfly. He made butterflies. And they're just stunning and amazing. And they perfectly match with some of the other things. What's interesting, and I'll kind of move on to humans here in a second. Oh, I'm going way too long. Sorry, Eric. (laughs) If you got to leave, I'm not offended. I'll, I'll wrap. I'll skip that point. Let's just get to humans. Does he? Dang it. Mike, when you listen to this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really go to the marathon here. Um, no, I won't. Um, so, one thought. We've just got done with birds, fish, plant life, and animals. One thing that Genesis doesn't do to break itself up a little bit here, think of the symbiotic relationships. A symbiotic relationship is one life form that absolutely depends on another to survive. And the kinds of things where animals... Butterflies need flowers to survive. So they have to have been made not only separately, but in concert with each other. That's amazing. You would never get a life form that needed something it couldn't access. C.S. Lewis makes this point with human beings. We get thirsty, and there happens to be water. We need sunlight for vitamin D. There happens to be the right amount of sunlight. We need food. There's food to eat. There's all these kinds of things. It is an odd thing to think that we need meaning and and a sense to our life and that there wouldn't be a God. There happens to be a God and that the logic is consistent. Why would a being ever be made that needs something it can't get? That doesn't make any sense at all. Yet we have this need that's kind of in us. And I don't think it's a psychological fault. I think it's beautiful. But you have lots of animals thinking of butterflies that need other things to exist for it to exist. We have whole ecosystems that depend on that. Let's finish up. Now God considers man. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over all the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We are coming to a conclusion. You see that summary right there? Let us, God said, let us make man in our image. There's a plurality here. God takes counsel with himself. God's in relationship with himself. And we are like this. What's the difference between our image and our likeness? And I want to venture to say, I would suggest, when God says, let us make man in our image, we get a clue here because it's not the same as our likeness. There's a purpose here. Notice really quick, skip forward to verse 29. Let's just finish up the section. And God said, See, I've given you every herb herb that yields seed, um, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, and you shall have it for food. Also every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth, which in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And then God saw that he had made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God makes everything. And we see an end to this creation process, this end of this first chapter, where there is a purpose to everything that's been done here. The purpose the Bible claims is that this was all made for you. Everything. The birds, my dog, bears, the fish of the sea, the whales, the shrimp, the lobster, the barbecue, I'm sorry. All of these things, they were made for you. 
They're made for humans to delight in and enjoy. The stars in the sky right where they're at, and you think, oh, that's so beautiful. They, they're beautiful because they were made for you. They didn't have to be beautiful, but they are. And you see all these kinds of things, the, the range of mountains. When you look out over the ocean sea, every beautiful vista that you have. We just got back from Italy. It's beautiful. And it was made to be beautiful for you. God had something he wanted to do. It was an act of love that happened here. That the God of the universe wanted to make something that would be for you that you could have as dominion. So then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I would suggest that when God is at counsel with himself here, our image has to do with the fact that we have a mind, we have a body, and there's a spirit that drives us. Right? We're a three-part institution. And so is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God has a body in Jesus. He has a spirit that he calls his spirit. And he has a mind, the mind of God, the word of God. These are progressive categories, as we saw that plants and animals didn't move. Remember I pointed out that birds and fish did move? And then when we get to animals, we see another progression here, and that these are um, things that are creeping and, and move around in a different kind of way. They're on the earth, and they're each according to our kind. There's a progression, so what's the progression for humans? And when God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. The difference or the distinctive for humans is that we're made in God's image. Animals have a mind. That's been well documented. They have a body that we can see. The spirit is the thing that's in question that we don't understand well. That's part of the mystery for us to endure. Um, Monkeys are often compared as, as being fairly close to humans. There's only one problem. Monkeys are really... As much as you can, might even be able to teach some animals sign language, we touch, teach our dog how to sit, and we have this behaviorist kind of saliva response with our dog with treaties, and we can get it to do almost anything. We can get that, that dog to even imitate thought in some ways. But the dog also doesn't have self-control, and neither do monkeys. One of the most common ways to capture a monkey, you all know what a monkey trap is? Put a little box, throw in a piece of food, and make a hole just big enough for a hand to get through, but not a fist. And that monkey will grab the food and will not be able to get loose because it can't let go of the food. There's kind of no higher order thinking there. So we can have those kinds of things. You can have rats that find their way through mazes, but if you take the food away, they're not going to find their way through the maze. There's no food. So they don't have kind of a driving spirit that makes them ask questions like, why am I here? My dog never asks that question. I guarantee it. He sleeps, he eats, and he licks. That's what he does. So animals do what they've been created to do within their kind, but they don't necessarily have this beautiful thing called a spirit like humans do. So let us make something that's in our image and likeness. In our image is a word selim, which talks more of like a representative or idol. In other words, when you say in our image, it's that we look like God. And I think the mental, spiritual, that spiritual explanation really covers that idea. But when you see likeness, that's demuth, which is to be like someone. So it's one thing to look like someone in form and in creation. It's another thing to be like someone, right? I think we were imagined by God originally to not just look like God in some ways, but to be like God in some ways. Now, I don't want to get all weird and fanciful here. This isn't a conspiracy theory. Think of 
the first few things that God actually does here for us. Um, in verse 7, he created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. This is verse 27. Where did the likeness go here? So when God created us in his image, but he intended for us to be in his likeness, that means there's a job to do. And the plan of our salvation is almost written right into this immediately. We were made to look like God. We have some of those attributes, like a spirit, but we're not quite like God. And when you look at the New Testament carefully, you'll see this theme over and over and over again, that while we are created in his image, we're not there yet. We're not complete. We're not born again quite yet. In those ways, that's kind of interesting. We're also made to have dominion over the earth. Um, For the sake of time, I won't get into this. I'll say it really quickly. I don't know why so many people have issues with dominion. Dominion simply means you're the boss. And we live in a culture where the boss, authority, dominion, control has taken this really negative connotation in some circles. And indeed, there's a dark side to people where that becomes their God and control becomes something they do. But to have dominion over something also means, and I think in this case, means a lot more like loving something. To have dominion over something like parents have dominion over their kids, that's not a dark, ugly thing. When healthy, that's a beautiful thing. And dominion over the earth or stewardship over the earth um, means that we should be thinking more like gardeners and less like, you know, miners or something like that. You know, it's just this kind of thing where it's not necessarily a horrible thing, but there is something to dominion where we can carry that task out well or we can carry it out poorly. In verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's blessing then is the starting point for our existence. So humans are made and God blessed them and that's the first thing he does with humans. The initial act of God is not to judge us, hate on us, and send us to hell. The initial act of God is to bless humans and give us this world to live in where everything's been created for us. That was the intention before the fall, to live in this concert with these things. The intention to give authority in verse 26, and now in 28, he actually gives his sovereign permission to human beings to have this dominion over the fish and the sea and the earth. One of the acts of the fall, I feel, is that humans have, at times, not cared for the earth the way we should be caring for the earth. Oddly enough, in our society, we've turned that into like a Democrat-Republican thing. I don't think that is at all. Caring for the earth is something we're commanded to do. We're supposed to take care of this place. So when you have people that are just destroying parts of the planet for their own gain, that's not necessarily a positive thing. Um, There should be this degree to where we care for what we have in front of us. We take care of it. If things are poisoning our waters, we should be concerned with some of those things. We're supposed to have dominion over. That's the thing we're supposed to take care of. Things are messing up the air. We should be a little bit concerned with that. If they're putting weird stuff in our food, Jessica's going to go after them. But we should be. That's something where we should be taking care of that planet that we have. So to have dominion is to care for something. In the same way God cares for us, we should be caring for other things around the earth. Let's wrap up. God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. And to you it shall be for food, So purposes we're supposed to eat. And again, I feel like I keep coming back to this theme of eating in every sermon I've done here. (laughs) 
eating is a glorious thing, and you think of all the feasts that God commanded for the Jews to have. You think that before he, the night before he went to his own crucifixion, the last thing on God's mind was to share some food with his disciples. There's something holy about eating and dining with each other and sharing food and breaking bread. And God has made that, that right from the first chapter of the book. He talks about it. And then he puts it right into his law. And then Jesus models it and demonstrates it. His first miracle is to, to create a little more wine for the wedding party. And that sort of thing is something where God loves the idea that humans embrace and enjoy with good stewardship the creation that he's made. It's the beauty of gardening, but it's also the beauty of little kids making mud pies in the gutter and just playing with dirt, right? There's things about touching and enjoying and experiencing the, the natural world around us that bring us closer to God in some wonderful ways. I'll finish. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I've given every green food, green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. This is the first time we see very good, right? Verse 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, it's just good. Here we see very good. Why do we see very good? It indicates a couple things. I think when you see um, in verse 29, and God said, see, he's asking us to look and see something. I've given you all these things. God's given us gifts. He's given us food, but he's given us all of creation. And he wants us to enjoy it. The central goal of all creation, the focus of this whole narrative, is that he made you and me, and he put us on this planet. I'd venture to say there's no accident for every person that's in this room tonight. There's no accident. You were here. God wanted you to hear this message. He wanted you to enjoy this day. He's given you life. He could take it away tonight. You don't have to have life. It's a gift that God's given you. So for every day that you have life, you have breath in your lungs, he's given this gift and he's given this idea that you're supposed to enjoy his creation, enjoy him, and be in relationship with him. Humans are built uniquely from animals, plants, and fish. We have the capacity to love. Not only love the creation that God made, but to love each other and to love God. And that's part of the whole purpose of this thing, that humans will mess up in the next few chapters. But this is the idea. This is the original thing that God seems to know that we're going to fall from it in some way, shape, or form. That each individual will be accountable to their stewardship and their relationship with God as to how they react to these gifts God's given. Romans 1 talks to that too. Right? That we'll know from the creation of the earth, we should be able to see God in the creation of the earth. We don't need necessarily to be seeing it through other means. The other piece is as we finish chapter 1, we now have a plot line. There is drama that has formed. So as we go into chapter 2, that drama will unfold. And the drama is that we're made in God's image, but we're not yet in his likeness. So that's a plot line. And it's a plot line for the whole Bible. And Jesus is going to say, I came to this earth not to destroy it, not to save, but I came, somebody help me out. I came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Right? And he wants to save you and I, and we'll come back to that. In chapter 2, then, we'll get into how that gets modeled. Um, uh, He wanted an order in the universe, and that order gets unhinged, and we start to see that. And this is, remember, before Moses makes all his laws 
So we have, uh, we have people finding God here in Genesis before the law is actually written. So how does that happen and what does that look like? And we'll dig into that a little more as we go. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your creation. We thank you for an evening to think about what exactly you have made and how amazing it is. Lord, we thank you for the parts of creation we don't understand, like mosquitoes and spiders and those kinds of things. But Lord, we know how you've made a world that sustains itself. The water cycle is balanced. The temperature of the earth is balanced. Lord, we know that you made some elements to defy physics, like water, so that this earth could sustain and keep life on it. Um, Lord, we know that you made animals not just as a task, but as a creative act for us to delight in. Lord, I think you love it when we look at your creation and we're amazed and we awe and wonder at what you've made and what you've done. Lord, I thank you for the microbiologists that look at your creation through a very small lens. I thank you for the people that look at the stars and wonder at the expanse and the, the, the size of this universe. Lord, I thank you for the oceanographers that give us a glimpse inside the bottom depths of the earth and the, the amazing life and wonder that you've built even under the waters that we can explore even today. There's parts of this earth that we've yet to explore. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your creation and your gift. Thank you that we can trust that you made it for us and that you had a plan. Lord, as we get further into your story, we want to embrace that. We want to, want to be more like you. Um, and we want to seek out every tool and every word you've given us to be more like you. So though we're in your image, Lord, we want to be in your likeness too. Help us to follow your example through Jesus Christ, to live life in your likeness. And... Um, to have our spirits more and more aligned with you. Let each turmoil and struggle, let each challenge, let each relationship we have that we're wrestling with or worried about, Lord, help those things shape us to be more like you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.